You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time: the roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When we miss something, it's because we missed it. We're human. It's going to happen. It's not be, you know, they realize now that they didn't back then that it's not because we're trying to stick it to them. Hey, today's podcast is brought to you by Roy's Umbrella. For all of your home loan needs, just go to roysumbrella.com. And if you need more information on a reverse mortgage, just schedule an appointment with one of Roy's specialists at Roy's Umbrella. And folks, this is so important. Remember this. There's no tricks, no nonsense, no extra or hidden charges at the end. I know because I've worked with Roy for a number of years. He has been unbelievably loyal to me. He's going to treat you like family. And all you need to do is go to Roy'sUmbrella.com. That's Roy'sUmbrella.com. With me is one of the game's very best all right, an umpire for 39 years. He's 43 games away from reaching an incredible milestone of 5,000 games on the field as an MLB umpire. 151 postseason games, that's the most ever. Six World Series, 11 League Championship Series, 13 Divisional Series. It is an absolute pleasure to welcome to the show Jerry Davis. Jerry, great to have you on the podcast. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Grant. Thanks for having me. You make me feel old. You, <laughs> you know, you know, I was funny. Uh, my last name is spelled N-A-P-E-A-R. And whenever anyone saw the last name, they would mispronounce it. And your name, Jerry, is with the G instead of a J. Correct. So take me back. How many times in your life do you think you have been oh. called Gary instead of Jerry? Thousands, no question. <laughs> yeah. But you know, they say they say from an umpire perspective, it's kind of good if they don't know your name. So uh, that's that's kind of worked out okay. Well, you know what? I'm glad you said that because I grew up in an era where I love watching the Ken Kaisers and Ron Luciano. Yeah. But you were you always had the attitude that hey, when someone watches a game, I don't want them to even know who I am. You want to be invisible, and if you are, then you know you did a good job on the field. Well, that's usually the case. I mean, obviously there are situations where you have to step up and you have to apply a rule or you have to eject a player, uh, those types of things. When those things occur, you have your job to do. But um, I've, I've kind of always had the mindset that, um, you know, my job my job is to uh, even the playing field for everybody. And, and uh, there's, there's not too many people there to watch me, that's for sure. You grew up in St. Louis. Around yeah. what age – did you think about getting into umpiring? Oh, wow. I, 
I was an avid Cardinal fan. Um, and I really, I, I played uh, baseball. I played on the traveling team in St. Louis. And uh, I really didn't want to be an umpire until uh, uh, my manager uh, basically pointed out to me <laughs> that, that I wasn't going to be playing a, a lot and that I was going to be uh, the umpire whenever we traveled. Uh, so I did that. And, and the manager said, you know, you're pretty decent at this. You should think about going to umpire school. And quite frankly, I didn't even know there was such a thing. Uh, I want, I grew up in St. Louis, wanted to be the next Dan Musial or Lou Brock or, you know, whoever I wanted to be a Bob Gibson. And, and, um, he sent a way to the umpire school for the application for me. It came to my house and it, it was at a time when I thought, well, you know, I want to be involved in sports in some capacity if I can. So I went to umpire school and as they say, here I am. Growing up in St. Louis, big time Cardinals fan. Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't your first ejection Whitey Herzog when he was managing the Cardinals? <laughs> yes, it was. Yes, it was. And that was an interesting thing too, because, uh, you know, the, the average fan would, would be concerned that because of my being such a Cardinal fan that I would, you know, favor them. Uh, and Herzog took the opposite approach. He thought that I was trying to, uh, you know, to be extra stern and stick it to them to show that I wasn't. So, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, is none of us can really think that fast. Uh, we're doing our job out there and, uh, you know, you kind of let the chips fall where they may. There are two aspects to being an umpire. So I want to have this conversation right now pre-instant replay because things are a lot different now with the technology and the replay. So let's talk now pre-instant replay. What was the most difficult part of being an umpire? Uh, without question, handling situations. Um, because, you know, to, to combine those thoughts just a bit, as an example, you know, you're up on second base and the guy tries to steal second. Uh, Pre-replay, you call him out and uh, he slams his helmet down, gets in your face, the manager's there, and you have a situation to handle. You know, now post-replay, when the same exact play happens, he just looks at the dugout and puts his hands to his ears. You know, uh, let's let's go to replay. So you know, as as a young umpire, I I I, I and I think it's it's changed the, it's changed the profession a little because you quite frankly you don't have as many situations to handle because because replay takes care of a lot of those. All right, 16, 17, 18, 19 inning game, hot day behind the plate. How brutal is that? <laughs> it's, it's it's terrible. It really is. It's uh, uh you know the the big thing and and. Usually when, when a fan goes to the game, unless they have met the umpires or whatever, they don't really pay a lot of attention to that. You know, and, and all of my friends, uh, once, once I became an umpire and, and they would watch the game from that different perspective, you know, they were, boy, you guys don't even go in between innings. You don't, you don't sit down between innings. You don't, you know, none of that. So it is difficult. Um, but, you know, the, your concentration level is such that uh, you don't have a lot of time to think about that until afterwards. We talk about you growing up in St. Louis, and I think I've shared this story with you, but I worked in Decatur, Illinois from 1984 to 87, and it was Whitey Ball. And I used to go to Bush Stadium quite often for the matinee games in the summer. And the first time I ever went to Bush Stadium was an afternoon in early August. And I'll never forget this. I had a pair of light 
colored dress shoes. And I was standing on the carpet at Bush Stadium, you know, two hours before the game, trying to get interviews and everything. And I literally sweat through my shoes and ruined them. And I remember, I'll never forget this. I'll never forget sitting in the dugout at Bush Stadium. And as you well know, when you sit in the dugout at Bush Stadium, the field is kind of eye level with you. And I remember watching the heat vapors coming off the field. And I remember the the temperature gauge they had, I believe, down the first baseline. I think it read 140 degrees. That had to be absolutely brutal to be standing out on the carpet. And a lot of the the, uh, stadiums back then had the turf, whether it was Philadelphia, St. Louis, Cincinnati. That had to be just brutal. And as you said, it's not like you're coming off the field and you were able to sit down every half inning. Exactly. Yeah, that was true. That was true. And and you're right about the other stadiums because back in that era, they had the cookie cutter type where, you know, Cincinnati, Philadelphia, St. Louis, all of those were the same. Uh, and that was also the era when they were they were attempting to see how many stadiums they could they could turn to AstroTurf, uh, which obviously, like you say, uh, with the vapors and stuff, caused it to be even that much hotter. It, it was brutal, no question. Jerry, thirty nine years. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I know thirty nine years. You need forty three to get to five thousand. I say five thousand games as an umpire. You tell me what. What does that mean to you, Jerry? Well, it's uh, it, it's special. I mean, because I I, I know the other umpires and and their numbers. Obviously, we're very much aware of those those numbers and stuff. And and when I think back to you know being in the minor leagues and, and anxiously awaiting a phone call that that you're going to be coming to the major leagues and 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 then over the course of my career to see the young guys when they come up, how happy they are and stuff. Um, it, it's very special. It, 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 it's a number that, you know, means something to me. Uh, and, and it won't to a lot of fans that, it, it, you know, it's just we're the umpire. So it's not that big a deal, but, uh, to my friends and my family and myself, it's, uh, it, it's quite an accomplishment that I'm really proud of. Six world series. Take me back to the first time you were a home plate umpire in the World Series. Is that maybe the biggest thrill, the biggest or the best memory? Does that is no that right up at the top for you, Jerry? No question it is, Grant. And it, it ironically, it was my first World Series because um, the the um, the rotations were in reverse order of seniority. So as the young guy, I was the youngest guy on the crew. I was behind the plate in Game Six of the 96 World Series with the uh, with the Yankees and the Braves. Um, the Yankees had uh, lost the first two games. Um, so I'm thinking, well, this is going to be over four or five games. I'm not going to have to work the plate. And then we go to Atlanta and the Yankees sweep them there. So it's 3-2. And, and uh, um, the, it, was a, it was a really different atmosphere. Back then, the Yankees had not been good for quite some time. That was uh, Jeter's rookie year. And um, first year that they were that they were back in the hunt, and the the first, games one and two, the fans, the Yankee fans, were just celebrating that they were in the World Series. Uh, so they, I mean, it was party time. But when we went back for Game Six, uh, they were going back to win to win a World Championship, and they stood the entire game. Uh, it's it's still uh, the biggest thrill that I've had on the field, and that was you know what was it thirty five years ago. And not to pat yourself on the back, because you're not one to do that, but didn't both pitchers give you a tip of their cap when they came out of the game? <laughs> You've done your homework pretty good. Uh, that was, uh, yeah, that was uh, Jimmy Key and uh, and um, 
pragmatics, and they did, yeah. So it was, it, it things went well. You know, you gotta you gotta be fortunate as well. I mean, you have to have good pitching, and things have to fall right and stuff. But uh, the the umpire gods, the baseball gods, were smiling on me that night. Did players have more respect for umpires back? before the turn of the century at 2000. So if we go the first basically 20 years of your career and the last 20 years, have there has there been a difference with the interaction between players and umpires? There's no question there's a difference. I think um, back in the day, interestingly enough, this is why one of the, this is one of the reasons I believe umpires really um, credit replay. Uh, before there was replay, whenever we missed something, um, the player just had the attitude that we were trying to stick it to him that uh, we didn't like them, whatever the managers thought that, that we, you know, that that we didn't care, any of that, that type of stuff. And now, I mean, we're scrutinized on every play, every pitch, uh, and they know they know now, or at least most of them know now, for, for the, for the um, purpose of arguing and stuff, that when we miss something, it's because we missed it. We're human, it's going to happen. It's not, be, you know, they realize now that they didn't back then, that it's not because we're trying to stick it to them. And when you miss a call, and I've become pretty close with a lot of NBA referees and through my friendship with Brian and meeting people like you and Wolfie and so many others, it eats at you. And I'm now talking oh. not I'm not talking about now. I'm talking about before replay. When you miss the call and you cost the team a game, and I think that's one of the biggest myths that fans have when they talk about officiating. This 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 is what you do. This is your career. This is what you do for a living. And when you miss a call, it's gotta be absolutely brutal. Yes, you have a game the next day, but that's 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 not easy, is it? Oh, not at all. Not at all, Grant. And it does. It uh I mean <clears throat> there are, you know, I can I can go back and, and give you plays that I missed. Those are the ones that stand out, you know. The, and in and in 39 years, I've, I've tried to limit those, you know. And you and you analyze why it happens, and you know, uh, make sure that you try to correct those things. But you're right. I mean, it's uh, uh, and I, I think Joe Torrey kind of summed that up best because Joe was a, you know, a, a very uh, vibrant, if you want to use that word, or. or active manager as far as his relationship with the umpires. And he thought that he thought that, you know, we just didn't care. We had a flight to catch or whatever. And then he got involved with the umpiring department and saw how we reacted when we missed calls and how we, how we were when we came in to the locker room after that, after that had happened and realized, um, you know, it's it, like you say, it, it becomes a lot more than just your job. It becomes more than your career. It becomes, in a great aspect, you know, who you are, you know, and, uh, and it, it, there's no question that it, it eats at you. Is there one manager who would just yap the whole game who was more <laughs> difficult to deal with than others? You know, I, uh, uh, I had a fairly good relationship with the, with a lot of the, you know, the, uh, total typical guys that you would ask about, you know, like Bobby Cox who had more ejections than everybody and Tori and Lasorda and, I had spring training games back in the Weaver and, and Billy Martin days. I had a decent uh, rapport with those guys. The, the manager that that bugged me the most and got to me was Lee Ely. Wow. Yeah, if you remember Lee, he was with the Phillies for a long time and managed with the Cubs briefly. He didn't do it so much in the major leagues because he was really happy once he got there because he had spent a lifetime in the minor leagues. He was going to be a minor league lifer. And when I was in double A and in, their team was in Reading, Pennsylvania. I mean, it was a war every single night with him. 
you know, and um, he was the guy, he was the guy who, who I knew when I went to the ballpark, I was going to have a tough night because I was going to have extra stuff to deal with. But he, he, he got better once he got to the major leagues. You were a National League umpire until they had interleague play, so you only had Cincinnati for three years when Lou Pinella was the manager. What was he like? Uh, same thing. I had a good rapport with Lou. Uh, I think, um, you know, um, the, the, the guys who were feisty and stuff, um, I think they, you know, and, and Bobby Cox used to say this all the time about how he would stand up to his players to make sure that things were fair. And I think if if with your hustle and, and, and your demeanor on the field, I think you can send the message that you're going to be fair to everybody and that uh, the decisions I make that go against you uh, were because they they should go against you, not because uh, of who you are or that I'm, again, trying to take it out on your team. Players now have the video replay, so if they strike out, they're going right to the dugout, and they're going to the video monitor, and if they feel that you made the bad call, do a lot of them come up and bark at you the next time up? Or conversely, do you have players now that go, hey, my bad, I'm sorry, man, you got that call right? How much interaction is there now because of players in the middle of the game when they're not right. in the field using video to see whether you made the right call or not? Well, they're, they're, trying, to put a, they're trying to curb that a little bit. Uh, as far as where the cameras are located and what what they can use it for, um, but yeah, it is a factor. Um, and again, I think uh, because of seniority and stuff, they they don't come up and bark afterwards uh, anymore. <laughs> uh, they may they may come up and say that you know that I got it right or whatever. But they you know they pout. I mean, there's no question. And and um, but the thing that you know, I mean, one of the things that I allude to a lot when talking about this is there, there's a particular phrase, uh, um, you know, that was used for years in, in baseball about protect the plate. Now, you know, uh, close enough to close enough to, uh, for, to be called a strike is close enough to swing at. Those aren't part of the game anymore. Now, if, if the pitch is an inch outside, it's your fault. Hmm. You know, it's not, it's not the player's fault, you know? And, and I think that's one of the main things that's really changed. Uh, and, and it's changed really the the, the uh, in a lot the way the game's being played. You know, as far as taking pitches, working the count, all that stuff. You know, nobody ever went to the big leagues because they walk. You know, um, and and that's kind of crept into baseball a little bit. Um, and and like I say, when when we miss a pitch that's an inch outside, it's our fault. And we are heading towards automated balls and strikes, are we not? I, for one, am not a fan of that, and I don't even know if I'm going to be able to watch the game. But your thoughts on that? Well, I don't know if we're headed toward it. I think, um, um, you know, the the um, the fan wants perfection, uh, and and it's kind of like you know, be careful what you wish for. I yep. mean, th- think about. I mean, like earlier, I was talking about the uh, you know the steal of second base, and my wife likes to tell the story that. You know, back in the day when there was that kind of play and, and the manager would come out, everybody stands they get to the edge of their seat. You know, it's, it's an exciting part of the game. You know, and now when it's time for replay, those, those same people go to the concession stand or to the bathroom. Hmm. You know, you sure. know and, and it, it, it's, a loss. it's lost a lot of its human element. Um, but with that being said, you know, uh, the powers that be may determine that that's, 
that's what they think is going to help the game. So we'll see where it goes. I don't know if I ever shared this story with you, but uh, Dick Mott, a longtime NBA coach, won a world championship when he was uh, coaching Washington back in 79. And I got to know him pretty well. He was the uh, coach of the uh, Kings back in the early 90s. And he was telling me a story that uh, his team was getting killed one night and he had gotten a technical foul. And as you know, if you get two technicals, you get ejected from the game. So, you know, Dick wanted to get ejected because the team was playing so bad. (laughs) He didn't want to be around and watch it. And the great late Earl Strom was refereeing the game. And Dick was up and he was yelling and screaming at Earl and uh, cursing at Earl. And in the middle of the game, Earl stops the game. All right. And he walks over to Dick and he says, Dick, shut up and sit down. If I got to watch this crap, so do you. I'm not throwing you out of the game. Exactly. Right. Exactly. I mean, you you I mean, you you dealt with that all the time in different ways. But did you come across managers that just had even though they were losing badly or whatever, had that kind of sense of humor or they were messing? You know, you know where I'm going. You have any stories that stick out like that? Oh, sure. I mean, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a human game. There's no question. It, it, there's no question. It really is. Um, I uh, one of my Lasorda stories um, was uh, was like that a little bit. Uh, I, I called a play. I called one of his runners out at first, and his first base coach at the time was Manny Moda, and and Manny uh, kind of waved his arms and stuff. Didn't really argue a lot, but. But, you know, did more than Manny usually does, right? Um, and Lasorda came out and he said, you know, I wouldn't come out here to argue, but Manny never argues, so you, so you missed that. I didn't miss it. Yeah, you did. <laughs> you know, just back and forth. So he turns to leave and um, he throws his gum back at me. Mm. And so, so I eject him and, and uh, he comes back, gets his two cents worth, and then, you know, and then leaves. And the crowd's going crazy, right? So after the game in the locker room, the phone rings. Clubhouse attendant says, "Hey Jerry, it's Tommy Lasorda on the phone," and then you could have heard a pin drop. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, Tommy, this is Jerry. He said, "Well, I just wanted to call and tell you that I that I uh, watched the play on replay, and and you did get that right." I said, "Well, thanks, Tommy. I, I appreciate your calling, but you just told fifty thousand people out there that I got it wrong, <laughs> you know." And, and now you just call me. He said, "You know what?" You're right, Jerry. That is right. And he called the reporters back into the room wow. and, and and told them that that he was wrong, that he should not have argued that play, that I got it right. How about that? And that was, yeah, that was a pretty significant thing in and of itself, but even bigger than that. I mean, and that was like, I want to say that was like my fourth or fifth year in the league. After that, he never argued another play with me. How about that? Wow. And, and he and he told me off the field um, later that the reason he never argued late after that was that if he knew that I cared that much, that I was going to give 110% all the time. How about you know, that? So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, it was uh, it was a, an eye opening kind of thing. And it, that's, that's, I think, an example of, you know, it's a human game. I mean, it, it, everything is how you handle situations. And, you know, everything we do really is, is a human game. You know, and, and, and your relationships with people. I covered the World Series in 1985 between Kansas City and St. Louis. Wow. And in game six, the I Don Deckinger call. And you, that was early in your career. And to see the abuse, including death threats, that one of your colleagues was getting over a missed call. What type of impact did that have you and your fellow umpires? Well, first of all, Don Deckinger is and was, is, whatever, one of the best umpires we've ever had. Um, 
he um, after after that worked the '91 World Series uh, and was behind the plate in the one nothing John Smoltz uh, Jack Morris game and, and that went ten innings in Game Seven and was was phenomenal. But nobody knows that, hmm. you know. Nobody knows that, and everybody, you know, no umpire wants to have a play named after him. Nobody wants to have the Richie Garcia play the. Jim Joyce play, the Don Dinkinger play, you know, nobody wants that. Uh, so we're obviously very conscious of that. And, and in Don's case, um, I mean, there there's not too many times, and he tells this story himself, there's not too many times that when he's at a function or whatever and and he's introduced, uh, this is Don Dinkinger, the, the inevitably the reply is, aren't you the guy? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, exactly. So um, it had it had it had a lasting impression on Don, obviously, and and on all of us that we know that that that's looming out there, you know. So it, it's 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 something we're certainly aware of. Well, obviously, you know, you, you look at Bill Buckner and uh, you know the World Series, the ball going through his legs, and he had a hell of a career. But that's all anyone remembers. Right. I started when I started my radio show in Sacramento. My co-host was Jack Youngblood, the great uh, L.A. Rams Hall of Famer. And Jack played in the Super Bowl with a broken leg. And I remember talking to Jack early on when I first met him. I said, does it bother you that you had an unbelievable career? And at this point in time, Jack had not yet been inducted into the Hall of Fame. But we kind of all knew that he would be. But I said, does it bother you that you had such an incredible career and yet when you hear the name Jack Youngblood, people go, oh, yeah, he's the guy that played in the Super Bowl with a broken leg. And he said, yeah, it kind of does. Isn't it amazing how you can have a whole career course, that yeah, can be gets, great? And yeah, it's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And and it's, uh, you know, the uh, it, it's what sticks in the fans' minds. You know, uh, as, I, as you've heard me say a hundred times, the word fan is short for fanatic. <laughs> you know, and, you know, and, and uh, it, it's it's what sticks in their mind, and that's, that's – that's generally how they remember you. What's the best thing about being a major league umpire? Um, I think, quite frankly, you know, the, the satisfaction. I mean, uh, a lot of people can't experience that, you know, and, and one of the things, I mean, you know, our, our conversation has been about what happens when you miss one, who yells at you the most, you know, those kinds of things. But the flip side of that coin is the satisfaction that you feel when you know you've umpired a hell of a game, that you've, you've had a great game, um, and you want the determining factor uh, that um, you made some calls that were difficult calls to make, and, and you made them properly and decisively. And, and uh, the, the satisfaction that you get, uh, the the experiences you have with your peers, those types of things are, are you know, they're <laughs> uh, life lasting. Again, my friendship with the umpires, and I know that. I'm not asking anybody to feel sorry for umpires or anything else. You have a great life. You chose to do it. And there are a lot of people that are listening or going, wow, that sounds great. I would love to do that. But I, I've seen umpires that are working a, a Sunday night game in New York or Boston. And those games always seem to last four and a half hours. And then, the, and, and then you have to catch the first flight out. And then the next day you are in you know, Arlington doing a Rangers game where you have a matinee and on the East coast. And the next night I turn right, on the TV right. and wait a minute, I'm waiting. I'm, I'm looking at this. And I'm like, wait, a minute the umpiring crew that i was just watching a yankee game with yesterday afternoon on sunday is now at uh, san francisco doing a game the rigors of travel now you don't do 162 no games you get a couple weeks off but the but the travel does that ever get to you there's no question grant that that's 
the flip side of what's the, the best part is what's the worst part of our profession. And there's no question that it's the travel. Um, we, uh, I, I, an example of that, I mean, you've been kind enough to talk about 5,000 games coming up. If you put in perspective that every three or four days, that's in a different city. You know, so that's that, without question the most difficult thing is the travel. You talk about 5,000 games, and I know you want the, the when it when the strike hits 5,000, you want that game to be in St. Louis, and, and baseball is going to try to oblige for that. Um, that curtain call, 5,000 games, Bush Stadium, your hometown of St. Louis, I, I wouldn't really get any better than that, would it? Well, that's, you know, that's, one of the reasons I asked if they would consider that, um, you know, having grown up there and like I said earlier, being, you know, the avid Cardinal fan that I was, uh, I do, you know, I mentally, I think of that as full circle, you know, so um, that's, that's one of the reasons I asked that it be there if possible. I've always said this and, and I grew up in New York and I'm a diehard Yankee fan and I, I lived through, you know, a lot of their, their great errors. And I was on the West coast for a long time and I saw the giants win, you know, three world series, but I tell everyone this, the best baseball town I've ever been in is St. Louis. And quite frankly, I don't even think it's close. I just, I've always been amazed at the, the passion. They talk Cardinal baseball, 365 days a year. It had to be unbelievable for, or someone like yourself growing up with those teams in St. Louis? Man, I, um, I can still picture myself with the transistor radio at my ear uh, in 1964 when the uh, race went down to the last day, listening to Jack Buck and Harry Carey. Wow. And, and, you know, and those, quite frankly, those are the reasons that the fan is so well informed there. Those guys knew the game inside out. They explained, uh, you know, how important it is to, uh, to hit to the right side and move that runner from second over to third. You know, there, there are a lot of nuances to the game of baseball that the average fan doesn't, doesn't understand. You know, they, they, I mean, Earl Weaver used to say in the American league, we, we sit and wait for the three run homer, you know, so sure. the scoreboard can light up and things like that. Well, in, in, in baseball, there are, there are games within the game, you know, as far as if a, a guy's going to challenge him with a fastball again, you know, little things that, that the average fan doesn't really appreciate. Baseball is one of the games that, you know, the 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 more you understand about it, the more you fall in love with it. And and uh, um, I, I think Jack Buck and Harry Carey had a lot to do with that for all of the fans there. But I I, I don't question whatsoever that they did. They they helped me fall in love with it. That's for sure. Jerry in the NBA the league has kind of a respect for the game that they're trying to implement between the officials and the players. And personally, I'm not a fan of that because I think they've gone overboard. I think that there's just too much bitching and complaining from players on almost every foul call on the field, major league baseball and the instructions you have, how much leeway really is there between you and a player? And listen, everyone's different. You've got some players that are complaining all the time. You've got some players that never complain, but how much leeway will you give a player? Well, I think uh, that kind of differs from umpire to umpire. And I think that that uh, develops over years with the rapport that they have. Uh, we don't have guidelines, per se, that, that say this is what you should listen to and this is what you shouldn't. Um, you know, we anything that's prefaced with the word you, uh, when you know it's directed at you, because, I mean, obviously, I mean, these are grown men playing the game, you know, so there are going to be vulgarities in the game. Uh, it's just they can't direct them uh, at you. 
one of the things that that the analogies I give over the years is that I think umpiring is a lot like parenting. Um, you know, there are different types of parents. I mean, you can be at a function and some some parents are sitting there and their kids are over swinging on the drapes and, you know, uh, pouring water on the floor and doing whatever. Um, and there are other parents where the, the kid's sitting right next to them not doing anything. You know, and there's got to be, I think, a happy medium. But the, the truth is, is that that player uh, or that child, whatever the case may be, has to know where that line is. You know, they have to know that here's the things that, that is accepted, here's what's not accepted, and uh, that there have to be repercussions when they don't. One thing that has been very apparent to me, and again, I think it's become more apparent just because of my friendship with so many referees and umpires, young umpires being taken advantage of and being tested. I think Aaron Boone is the worst. Right. I, I think he's awful uh, in, in his public comments a lot of times towards young umpires. But you very often throughout your career have had a triple-A ump join you for a week or two or a, a rookie ump. What's the biggest piece of advice that you give them before they walk out onto the field? That all they need to do is exactly what got them there. Uh, we don't have to, you know, you don't have to turn it up a notch and be any better than you've been. Uh, can you hear my dog? In the yeah, I, I thought that was Aaron Boone. <laughs> I, I thought that might have been Aaron Boone, uh, you know, uh, joining the conversation. Exactly. He, he doesn't agree with this either. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but um, yeah. uh, I think I think the advice has been pretty, uh, pretty steadfast in that, you know, uh, you just do what what you normally do. And if it, there's anything out of the ordinary we're here to take care of it. You just worry about your, your, your stuff. 39 years, 4,957 games, 151 postseason games. If you look back and when you look back at your career, do you regret anything at all? <laughs> you know, you, I got to say no. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, I've been really blessed, really blessed Grant and uh, um, fortunate, you know, to, to have been part to have been a part of this. I mean, uh, Major League Baseball has given me and my family, you know, a lot more than just a career and what we earn and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's it's a real sense of satisfaction that, you know, that I've done um, a, a pretty good job for a really long time. And I wanted to ask you about Jerry Davis Sports because I know you're very proud of that. How did that begin? Well, uh, it's a, a umpire equipment and apparel business for amateur sports officials and and. It, it started because I wanted to redo our plate shoe that we wear when we're working the iron on plate. We had either uh, um, one of two options. It was either uh, a big clodhopper steel walker shoe from Iron Age kind of thing, or it was an athletic shoe that didn't have anywhere near enough protection. So I wanted to come. I mean, it wasn't rocket science. I just thought if we can combine these two, uh, which is what we did, and uh, it was hugely successful and. Uh, people would call and say, boy, we love your shoes. Uh, can I get a shirt or, you know, where I can get some pants? And that quickly it was, uh, I'll get right back to you. <laughs> you know, so that's how Jerry Davis Sports got started. Jerry, it's and been that was, yeah, go ahead. 25 years ago. Wow. That's, wow. Time does fly. I got to tell you, I've, I've uh, you know, you and I have been together on a couple of occasions and I, I've absolutely just loved our chats talking about sports, you talking about baseball, me talking about my background growing up in New York with the football and the baseball. And uh, I just have, have really enjoyed getting to know you. And I, I really hope you get to 5,000 this year, Jerry. I, I wish you nothing but the best. And thank you so much. It was great having you on the podcast. Grant, thank you very much. You're, you're a type A guy.
It is now time to answer some questions. If you go to crowdquestion.com, you can sign up, ask me a question. I'll answer it right here on my podcast. Lynn says, Grant, all the years traveling in the NBA, what are some of your favorite stops? What are some of your least favorite stops? Well, every year that the NBA schedule came out, I looked at two things. Number one, when were we in New York? And number two, when were we in Miami? And did we have a day off? I absolutely for reasons that I don't think I need to go into. Love going to Madison Square Garden. It was uh, such a thrill for me. It was a thrill to have my family with me. It was a thrill to have my dad and my aunt. And uh, whenever my brother could make it, uh, which was very often, and my brother actually uh, would do stats for me and he'd be sitting right next to Walt Frazier on the court. Uh, there was nothing quite like sitting on the court at Madison Square Garden, especially, and and Mike Breen is one of my really good friends, but growing up idolizing Marv Albert, you know, I'll never forget doing a Knicks game, my first Knicks game in 1988, and we're sitting courtside, literally on the court at Madison Square Garden. I mean, it's, it's the closest that I've ever been to the court, announcing NBA basketball opposite the scorer's table. And my brother was sitting to my left, and then next to my brother was Walt Frazier. And then next to Walt was Marv Albert. And I just still to this day, that's one of the greatest thrills that I've ever had in my broadcasting career because I grew up idolizing Marv and I would have never been in this business had it not been uh, for Marv Albert. That was by far. So those are my two favorite stops, New York and Miami. Used to love going to Chicago Stadium too when Michael Jordan was playing. Uh, so what are some of my least favorite stops? Well, my least favorite stops Probably Memphis, even though one of my very, very close friends, Eric Hasseltine, is the radio voice there. And Eric and I used to go out, and I love seeing Eric. So, I mean, it was great, but downtown Memphis is awful. Uh, it's got to be the worst downtown of any city I've ever seen in America. Uh, it's just awful. But at least Eric was there, and uh, I love seeing Eric. But Memphis, uh, Milwaukee, it was so freaking cold every time you were in Milwaukee, you couldn't do anything. So, I, I would say those probably were my two least uh, favorite stops. Good question, no, Lynn. All right, this is from Chris. In 1985, I stood in line for over five hours to purchase tickets for myself and my buddies to watch Michael Jordan play at the first Arco Arena, but he broke his foot against the Warriors, so we got to watch Joe Klein have the best game of his career. Did you ever stand in line for hours to purchase tickets to see a great player, and he did not show up? You know, Chris, that's an amazing question. Because when I first moved to Sacramento, it was July of 1987. And I'll never forget that fall going out to ARCA 1 and doing a story on fans who had been in front of the box office for two and three days. They had lounge chairs. They had tents. I mean, it was the most amazing thing. 10,333 uh, fans. And they would put individual game tickets on sale from time to time. And as you know, because you waited in line and you were lucky if you only had to wait five hours. I couldn't believe that people literally were sleeping out in front of the box office for, you know, two and three days. The answer to your question is I don't ever remember waiting that long in line. But yeah, throughout my life. Um, I've been disappointed going to, you know, thousands of sporting events as a fan and not seeing my favorite player or players. Yeah, that is unfortunate. Um, it, it does happen. But nothing, nothing just uh, uh, sticks out. All right. All right. Next question. How were you able to keep yourself motivated to keep working for the Kings after 10 plus years of mediocrity and poor management? Uh, was it a challenging experience? No, not at all. And I don't understand why I get asked this question. And I don't say that to be condescending to you. 
It's the NBA. There were 30 teams in the NBA. Are you kidding me? Uh, would I rather be doing a team that's winning 60 games every year like I did back in the early 2000s with the Kings and how much fun that was? Well, yeah, of course. But you're still doing the NBA. And even if you're doing a bad team, you never know what is going to happen. I'll give you an example. You know, a couple of years ago, I'm doing the Kings and the Warriors late in the year. I want to say it was March. I may be wrong. Don't hold me to that. The Kings aren't going anywhere. They're a non-playoff team. And they're playing the Warriors. And Klay Thompson scores 37 points in the third quarter. Think about that. 37 points in one quarter. And to this day, in my 32 years of NBA experience, that's the most amazing individual achievement that I've ever seen. So it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. My job is to announce the game. My job is to try to make the game as entertaining and as interesting as possible. And I never looked at it that way. I was always a thrill to do an NBA game. And I never said, well, gee, the team stinks. So no, not at all. You do the game as if you're doing game seven of the uh, NBA finals. All right. Uh, Next question from Drew. Do you ever gamble on sports? I do not. I don't. And the reason why I don't is I don't ever want to get addicted to sports gambling. I just don't. I've seen too many lives ruined over sports gambling. So I don't. And I know I'm very much in a minority. Now, if you call putting in, you know, 10 bucks in the NCAA college basketball pool, if you call that gambling, yes, I do that. But do I bet on football? No, absolutely not. I was not for 32 years allowed to bet on basketball, but it wouldn't have factored into anything because I never bet anyway. But no, to answer your question, uh, I do not. All right. It's time for Rant. Rant. Today's rant is brought to you by New Works Plumbing. Locally owned in Sacramento for 20 years. Leak detection, water line repair, bathroom plumbing. New Works Plumbing is a full service plumbing solution. Folks, no matter how small or how large your plumbing problem, they've got a fix for you. Their expert technicians are available 24-7 for all of your plumbing needs. Just go to newworksplumbing.com, N-E-W-W-R-X-Plumbing.com. All right, so yesterday, I see that Sarah Fuller from Vanderbilt, all right, was named SEC Co-Special Teams Player of the Week for appearing on the field to start the second half and doing a squib kick to the 35-yard line. Now, I know that Sarah Fuller's getting a lot of attention, and you know what? Good for her that she was on the Vanderbilt football team, and hopefully she'll have more moments. And it's awesome that she is now a role model, and she has, in no question, inspired other female athletes to strive to do whatever they can. All right? So for that, I give Sarah Fuller a lot of big-time check marks. Good for you. You had a lot of people talking about you. You had a lot of people supporting you, and good for you. But let's not get carried away with this, would you please? All right? All right, because of COVID, uh, they took her from the women's soccer team, which she was great, and they were champs, and she became front-page news. And again, good for her. Role model, inspiration, that's great. But she gets on the field and does a squib kick and then runs off the field, all right, and then they get the ball at the 35-yard line, and she's SEC co-special teams player of the week. I mean, don't you think that's going a little overboard for crying out loud? 
I mean, enough is enough already with 2020 politically correct. And you got to do this and you can't say that. You know, I mean, we could go on and on and on and on. Stop it with this nonsense already. All right. I mean, yeah, applaud her for. You know, having the courage, first and foremost, all right, to step forward and go, I'll kick and I'll try. And the camaraderie and the reaction from her teammates look to be uh, very genuine and outstanding. And again, that's great. But let's let's calm down a little bit. Would you please? One kick, you know, a squib kick to the 35-yard line, and then she runs off the field so she doesn't have to potentially make a tackle or get hit. And she's the SEC co-special teams player of the week. Is that where we are now in 2020? What a bunch of nonsense. I mean, stop it already, would you? Just stop it. Awful. Uh, To me, it's embarrassing. You're going to give her an award? You're going to give her a a, a special honor? Special teams player of the week? Gee whiz. And that is my rant for today. Really appreciate you listening to the podcast. Hope you are enjoying it. If you do, do do me a favor, would you please subscribe and leave me a comment. Love to see the comments and spread the word around. If I had a lot of fun, tell me what you like and what you don't like. And don't forget, Monday through Friday, to go to YouTube, my YouTube channel, if you don't like that with Grant Napier, to watch my video rants. My thanks today to Big League Umpire, 39 years, Jerry Davis, for joining us. If you don't like that with Grant Napier.